bubbly. I've got some of that in this. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we could kind of talk about that for a bit first here. Like we're trying to write a, a, a book of short stories here, you and I, mm-hmm. based on, you know, loose stories that we've heard from our, our weird days in the trades. But um, so we're, we're trying to crush that out. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good exercise really because short stories are fun to write. I find them fun anyway. It's actually a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. Yeah. Well, I've written, I've written two. Mine are shorter than yours. And I could have lengthened them, but I, I'm aiming for a certain length of article size, sort of, right? But it's good to have variation. And yours couldn't have been any shorter. It took that much. So it depends on what, what it's about. Like the one I wrote was about the guy that, you know, was with the hooker and left the car behind. <laughs> that just... Like it, sure, it could have got longer, but they didn't really... It wasn't my story and they didn't tell me more, you know? So I could have made a whole bunch of shit up, but I just, well, I, I I did make a bunch of shit up, like all Mm -hmm. the stuff about, well, I don't know. I don't know if we'll leave this in, but all the stuff that the, like the Thanksgiving dinner and the whole reason why that all happened. I didn't get that part when this person told me this, this shared story. I just got the action scene. Well, you know, I'd leave it in. It could possibly be tightened a little. Yeah. Like that's, that's the kind of the thing that I'm thinking is, is to kind of like, there's a couple things that, you know, when I got halfway through writing it, I was like, oh, geez, if I, if I write it with this event in mind, then it's not going to work um, putting the pressure on the end of the story mm-hmm. like I had, because there would be nobody around. Right. And yep. kind of having the race against time makes it a little bit more of an exciting story. And then I thought I might punch up and gross out a little more, even though I think it's gross enough as it is the, uh, the, the bathroom scene, but um, other than that, mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, it, it needs a little bit of tightening up and, and, and maybe a little fluff taken out or whatever, but yeah, it was, it was a fun one to write. I banged that out in about two hours. I guess That's, I could type faster than I used to be able to. I don't know. Well, on that, that uh, piece about the movie, I wrote that in about two hours and then I cut about a third of it. Oh, really? Mer- I mercilessly cut it because it wasn't valuable stuff. You know what yeah, I mean? Kill, like kill I, babies, I, I kept yeah. the good stuff. Whatever, whatever I couldn't get rid of, that's what I kept basically, because there was a bunch of stuff in there that I don't know. You can always make more stuff. I'm a real big fan of tightening now. In fact, I did a 30 day challenge recently where, where you had to address a writing prompt in less than 150 words. Mm -hmm. And the prompt would be like, you know, what was a good customer service event you had or whatever. And the first two were like super hard. And then suddenly just, you know, it unlocked the cutting demon. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? No, that's, well, that's, that's sort of the thing. Like there's a, I don't know if you listened to that, uh, that Chuck Polemic interview that I, that I sent you. I haven't had that, time yet. Have you ever read any of his books besides? I like don't, he, I don't well, have he, any idea. He wrote, he wrote, he's famous for writing fight club. That's his most famous okay. work. Okay. Haven't and, read it. And that's where I kind of got onto him because I enjoyed that one. And then I read a, a few books after his and um, his books have kind of, I don't know if you ever read Kurt Vonnegut when you were younger in your younger nope. days. Um, he's got a lot in common. He's kind of like the, uh, I guess the, uh, the spiritual successor to Kurt Vonnegut, who mm. I love. Like he's just one of my all time favorites. Kurt Vonnegut, he wrote these very verbose and, and really kind of out there sci-fi satire mm-hmm. novels. Well, I've and, seen a couple things based on his books. Yeah, they make terrible movies, and mm-hmm. um, I haven't I haven't <laughs> seen a movie based on one of his works that I actually 
enjoyed. And every time I watch a movie, I'm just like, holy shit, this needs to stay a book. But uh, they keep trying. You know, the last one I think was uh, Breakfast of Champions with Bruce Willis. That's the last one I watched. And I was like, oh, okay. And I watched that and it was a huge piece of shit. So, well, Bruce Willis was in it. So, <laughs> yeah. I've but he's got faith in him. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's totally left the, left the planet, I think. But, um, Chuck, Chuck there, he, his books have kind of started out. They, you know, they started out, they had like a good um, narrative that you could follow or whatever, and they'd make good movies. There's a few of them that would still make good movies. And they've made a couple more since, since uh, fight club, but now they've kind of tracked into a territory where the subject matter and the way they're written are so bizarre and dis, disjointed. And the stories like they, they, I, I'm actually thinking that he's in that kind of territory that Kurt Vonnegut got to where he's found a way to make his style just only make sense if you read it in the book, which mm. is kind of a really cool talent because I'm pretty sure that uh, that's the way it is with a lot of writers like Stephen King stuff never translates. Never. Well, see, we're, we're going to get into, <laughs> we're, we're, we're naturally transitioning to talking about Dune here Yeah, Be- because uh, I, I'd agree with you. And the thing, the thing about uh, adapting a book into a movie, to me, I've seen some successful versions of it, and some of those come from very short, concise books. One example that I can think where I read the book after I watched the, in this case, it was a show, was Dexter. And I was like, wow, this is, uh, you know, the adaptation of this, they really got what the idea was and they ran with the idea and they left kind of the book and sticking to the book aside and they still kind of stuck to the book, but they were able to make the show, I think, better than my experience of reading the book. I read the first one. I can't even remember what it was called. And then I just stopped. I never read another one after because the show <laughs> did such a good job of conveying the feeling of the book to, I don't know, I, I just felt that. I was For, unaware that there was a book of that. Yeah, there was a series of books actually <laughs> uh, before. Well, a, a show geez now i might have to go read those <laughs> same with true blood and i <laughs> you know true blood i've read all the true blood books have you they are not the same as the show not even close an interesting aside okay so there's two different vampire type shows slash movies that came out roughly at the same period of time however twilight came out after true blood was already on tv definitely came out after the true blood books were written the twilight books came after true blood books okay in uh in the twilight genre or the twilight story there's a vampire who can read minds but can't read the mind of one specific human and in the uh in the true blood books there's a human who can read minds but can't read the mind of a specific vampire so that just seems like a little bit of stealing there to me is what i'm getting at Oh, you know, these, these, <laughs> these, these pieces of genre fiction all borrow back and forth from each other, right? But that one's just like directly, oh, I'll just, I'll just swap the type of person that can read minds but can't read that specific mind. Because yeah. that's an integral plot point for those two. I, I wouldn't doubt. I wouldn't doubt if they borrowed back and forth, you know. And, and those True Blood books, they, they are, uh, let's just say, quite, well, they're a lot like the show in that way that they're very explicit. So I'm reading these books and then I find out that uh, a friend of ours lent my uh, not even teenage daughter an entire bag of them, like 12, however many books there was. She had all of them and she was reading them. I'm like, you're letting my daughter read that? What are you nuts? Might as well just give her a porno mag while you're at it and a a couple DVDs. That was back in there. They were that bad. eh? They should have come (laughs) wrapped in brown paper. (laughs) Pretty much. Close. 
the other example I can think of, and you mentioned Stephen King for like the uh, the books translating badly to movies was The Shining. I don't know if you were a fan of the book and the movie. I'm a fan of both. The book did was you okay. Ever, did you ever see the uh, the faithful adaptation that Stephen King made for uh, in a made for TV movie? I watched it. That was the one with the maze creatures, wasn't it? Yeah, they had they did the full thing, like the yep. all the crazy supernatural manifestations and all yep. that. And I prefer that one to the original movie. Well, we're I'm, disagreeing here. And I think just because I like more weird stuff. Yeah. Sure. The some of the acting in the original one was pretty darn good. And it had its moments, but for whatever reason, the second one, this the ser- TV series stuck with me more. Is that right? Yeah. However, well, now what about the continuation? Have you seen that movie? Dr. Sleep? Yes. I have seen uh, a little bit of Dr. Sleep, but I haven't watched the whole thing. I'm one of these old people who has a bunch of movie channels. Oh, yeah. I, I still, uh, you know, during the day, my day's off or whatever. If I'm having a nap on the couch, I'll put the TV on. And, and that movie came on one of the movie channels one time so like the old man regressing back to my childhood that i am i'm in love with just watching whatever's on the movie channel so mm-hmm. i do that now so i caught a bit of it uh, the first like i'm just gonna say half an hour or so and i i thought it was pretty good so i'm gonna have well, to sit down and watch the whole thing i loved that one i will be watching it again just oh yeah yeah that's that's definitely a, a watch at least twice movie so if i'm not mistaken i think the guy who did that one might be the same guy who did the vampire show that we just watched the uh black midnight no midnight mass midnight mass i think he did yes yeah i'm not absolutely sure but i think it could be the same guy yeah the same team which i also really liked we're getting caught up on our on our stuff here but i know that it has another tie-in with the dune there we've got rebecca ferguson as rose the hat and Mm. what i saw her i liked and and she's lady jessica and dune Okay, that's why she looked familiar. Yeah. So I guess uh, talking about uh, adaptations of books, I think the uh, I was having a conversation the other day with someone about uh, when they adapt a book like Dune that's very complex and some people call unfilmable. And they, I think it's very possible. And I think uh, they did a good job. But it reminds me a lot of The Shining the way they did it because I think the, the original Stanley Kubrick Shining movie kind of was able, he was able to find... He, he took a big book full of big ideas and he said, well, what's this really about and what can we boil it down to? And I think he boiled it down to the concept that was the one central scary theme, which was that, you know, this guy is unhinged. He's going up there all by himself. He's not in a good mental state when he gets up there. And then it makes it even worse that he's up there in this, you know, hillside friggin' or mountainside hotel just going nuts with a a wife that he doesn't know that he loves and a kid that he doesn't want and and you know he's already taken that baggage up with him and i think um just being able to focus on that made the point of the movie a little bit more reasonable i -hmm. think than uh than doing a faithful adaptation of the book and i think if you were going to do like a movie you have an economy like you have a a very small economy you have a set amount of time and people are going to go and they're going to sit in a movie theater Uh, which doesn't have the comfy seats that the one that I sat in to watch Dune had classically for like two hours tops. And then, and then they're out and your butt starts to go numb. You start to get pissed off, you know, uh, anything longer than that, you know, they used to have intermissions. Mm -hmm. So 
so that you know the, the the classic teaching was to keep under thing everything under the two hour mark and uh i think now maybe that that's kind of like leaving or whatever and you could probably throw some more of that stuff in if the shining was going to be made today by the same guy i'm wondering if he had a longer runtime if he put more of that stuff in or if he just keep it as tight as it was yeah i don't know it's it's kind of an interesting conversation to have but i found a lot of those overlaps with dune well one thing that they might have done with modern technology is of course more special effects but that might have been worse well it might not necessarily make things in the case of the shining scarier it might it might just make them kind of like a i don't know more spectacle which isn't always that's not always the scary stuff i think the scary stuff is like the things that everyone can relate to i mean everyone can relate if you got if you're a father you can kind of relate to you know being married having a Mm -hmm. fight with your wife having a you know, getting mad at your kid, getting too mad at your kid sometimes, you know, all that stuff is inside kind of everybody, or you thought those thoughts at some point, so you can relate to that guy in that respect. Mm-hmm. But uh, once the bushes start turning into bears and shit and walking around, I don't know if, I don't know if that's going to stay scary if that stuff happens. Do you want to, uh, do you want to talk Dune, Tim? Okay, let's talk Dune. you ready? Well, pretty ready. I've been waiting 30 years I still years haven't read this. the book, but... Well, that was, so I was going to start by asking you, like, what, what is your first Dune experience? Did you watch the 1984 David Lynch Dune? Yeah, I did. Certain scenes from that movie, you know, you don't forget. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe you're talking about, uh, are you talking about all the really gross weirdo shit? Oh, you know, are we going to do spoilers? Are we going to do spoiler free? Well, okay. I listen, I'm I really here's the thing. I'm bad at math, but Dune was written in 1965. And mm-hmm. I don't know how many years ago that was, but I'm going to say like we're like at 57 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right? So but it turns out a lot of people have no idea what the story is. No, okay. Well, I think what we'll do is we'll kind of here's what we're going to say. Well, maybe you can give like a little recap of I guess what you what you what you what you say what you would say the story is about. Okay, and then and then after that, we're going to say everyone who hasn't, uh, if you're listening and you and you haven't read the book or seen the David Lynch version or seen this new movie, uh, you're going to want to shut it off because we're going to just uh, we're going to talk some doom here. So, short recap: there is a rich family of which the father is a duke in a huge intergalactic empire of some sort, which has an emperor. And they are on one planet with a large army, which has a Navy, which I think is kind of hilarious because the emperor says, well, forget your Navy. You're going to a desert planet. And uh, they've removed the ruling family of the desert planet, which is constantly under rebellion. And they're going to send this, this family there. And the, uh, the main character is uh, what? 15. I think he's 15. Yeah. About 15. Yeah. His dad is the Duke. He's going to, he's going to inherit the kingdom basically. And they're going to go be in charge of this new planet. And his mom is a witch, a space witch. I don't know how psionicist they have mind powers. Yeah. The planet's called Arrakis. I don't know. Once they get there, everything just falls apart on them. That's the long and the short, right? That's pretty, that's pretty much it. The long and the short, the, the long and the short of it. Um, so I can tell you got questions like you, you, you know, you've, you've got enough. Uh, so you've never read the book. You've just seen like the old David Lynch version. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much of it has stuck with you over the years or how, how often you've seen it. 
Well, the old pain box, I remember that one. The old pain box, yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember the uh, large and in charge enemy, Duke, flying around in circles, spraying blood everywhere or something. Um, yeah, he was pretty gruesome in the David Lynch version. Yeah. Nowhere near as much standing army type stuff in the in the other movie. Sure, there was army, but not not to the extent that there was in this new movie. Uh, I don't know. I I guess we could. That's kind of more or less the uh, the jumping on point that I had with Dune too. Um, when I was a kid, I would uh, sit in the morning before I went to school, staring at the back of my cereal box, and uh, the cereal box has always had like a tie-in with the movies or whatever that were out at the time. And in 1984, Dune was the big science fiction epic that was, I guess, going to be the answer to Star Wars. Return of the Jedi just come and gone and everything was kind of, everyone was kind of looking for that next big science fiction epic movie that they can make. And uh, the next one that showed up on my cereal box was this guy, I remember him holding up, he was standing there or whatever in the desert. There was all these like sausage looking spaceships behind him on this desert planet. It was a big dune thing. I remember thinking, holy shit, that looks pretty cool. Eight-year-old me or whatever I was back then. And I tried to read the book I took it out of the, uh, the library in the town that I was living in at my school library. They had a copy of it. And I think it was about 11 years old. The first time I tried to, to, to read it. And my, the lady who ran the library, I remember her telling me, she's like, there's a lot of stuff in here and the words aren't going to make any sense. And they'll make sense. Like if you're older, she's like, maybe you could read it, but maybe, maybe it might be too much for you. And so I tried to read the book then and she was right. It was too much for me at that time. I was like, I think 11 or 12. And uh, I wound up putting it back and I didn't pick it up again until uh, I'd seen the, the, you know, the David Lynch movie. And not when I was a kid, I wound up seeing it when I was about 13 or 14. And uh, I really liked it. I liked the, uh, I liked the, uh, the cast that was in it. I was kind of, uh, I knew, I knew about uh, Twin Peaks at the time. And a lot of the people from Twin Peaks wound up in that movie. And then uh, I also liked the kind of music that was in there. They had like a Brian Eno um, and, and, a, and a, he did a song at the end of the movie. And I was into him because I was a big U2 fan at the time. And then they had like, you know, uh, uh, I think who was the, the soundtrack. They had the cool pop synth soundtrack. There was things I really liked about it. But that one went on. I, I looked at that show and I, I, I liked it and it was really flawed. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I just thought, holy shit, they're just jamming a whole bunch of crazy stuff in here. And so when I was about 20 years old or 21 years old, I, I, re, I retried a copy of the book and I read the book uh, in its entirety. And the first thing that jumped in my head was, holy dog shit. This is way different than this is way different than any of the movie that I saw. It's not anywhere near as weird. It's still weird, but it's not anywhere near as like creepy weird. And it was, there was a whole bunch of like really interesting concepts in the book that they never even had time to touch on in the movie. They kind of glossed it over for the most part. Um, and they, and they did a, as good of a job as I think they can do jamming that whole book into a, into one movie. There was a TV series. I don't know if you watched that. I caught a couple episodes, I think. So if you're a really big Dune purist and, and you just want to see like all the stuff that's in that book, which wasn't in this new movie, then I think you're going to be the most happy watching that one. And I really, I'm going to come right out and say that I'm a fan of all three. There's things I, there's things that I love about the David Lynch movie. I love the production design. I love some of the casting. I love the sets. 
I love the look of the worms. I like the extra alien kind of feeling that they had. I don't know if they did it with the coloring of the movie or whatever, but it has, it has like a good vibe and feel to it. That's kind of like, you know, that eighties trippy space sci-fi fantasy stuff. But I didn't like that it like took a lot of liberties and, and they just had to speed run through a, a mm-hmm. bunch of a bunch of stuff, right? The TV series, I really liked the TV series because it was the most like the book that I read. And for all intents and purposes, they got all the plot points, all the stuff that's in the book is in that TV series for the most part. And they even had to make some stuff up to kind of pad the runtime. I think they did, I want to say, what was it? Three hour and a half episodes. It's six hours long. It's a big beast of a thing, but they had like 12 bucks to spend on it. So it didn't really work out well. So waiting for this movie to be made, there's been several variations of this from, from 2000 when they, when they made that Dune TV series up until now when they made this, this one, which I thought was pretty good. There was another one in the works that was going to be done by, I believe, uh, Peter Berg, who directed like Very Bad Things. Mm-hmm. And what was the other one that he did? The Kingdom. And a, and a couple other ones, I can't remember his uh, Hancock, I think was his movie too. So he was going to do this Dune adaptation after Hancock. And there'd been a bunch of production art that kind of came out and some concept art of the worms and stuff like that. And they looked really violent and, and uh, crazy as things were at the time. And that one never really took off. So it wasn't until recently that they did this one that I was like kind of holding out hope because uh, the director I know is a fan and that's a, I don't know, that can, that can be hit or miss. And I've seen most of his movies, except for, I'm going to say he's got one called Incendies that I haven't seen. And he did a movie about the Montreal Polytech shooting. He did a movie about that. I haven't seen those two, but I've seen his other ones and they're all super duper good. So I was, I, I don't know. I was, I was pretty happy. That was my, my run up to Dune. I'm a big Dune super fan. I've read the book about seven times. I've read the whole series. I'm on a second read through the whole series. I had to stop because it was just kind of con- all consuming. And uh, I had to pick up something else for a little bit of time. But uh, what I wound up picking up was a kind of a very similar in tone and fashion and, and actually kind of owed a lot to Dune. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. So if you enjoy Dune, you're going to enjoy this other thing. And I wound up picking that up right away. So I don't know, I'm rambling on like a nutcase. I, I just really liked it, but I think this is maybe the point we should tell everyone. If you, uh, Tim's, I think your, your assessment of the story is pretty accurate. That's, that's more or less what it's about. That and drugs. Well, there's a, <laughs> there's some drug stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, so, okay. So this is a point we're going to say, if you haven't, if you're listening and you haven't seen the movie, read the book, or you're not comfortable with knowing spoilers, this is the time you're going to want to tune out because from here on out, I think it's going to be spoiler heaven. Fair enough. Sounds fair to me. Sounds fair to me. Okay. So let's go. So, the drug aspect, I think, is an interesting thing. So, Tim, do you want to be spoiled at all? Like, you're going to read the book. Do you want me to spoil the book? You- well, I do kind of basically know know what happens next, roughly, because, you know, I've heard the story. I haven't haven't read the book, but... Well, I, I think if you've seen the David Lynch version, too, you know you know how it's going to end. Um, mm-hmm. Because they, they did they did kind of stick the ending for the David Lynch one. So in that respect, I mean, unless I'm mistaken, or unless they wind up doing something uh, in the, the book that follows it, I think the ending will probably kind of stick. But yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting thing. So what like how, how do you want to talk about this? Do you want to talk about? Well, let's just in general, a few things I read on read online, for instance, 
they weren't happy how <clears throat> the mother was treat how how she acted in the movie how she was crying all the time for instance yeah i read that one well, uh, i did read that too now in the book was she more of a strong female personal person or was she wimpy like she appeared to be in the movie according to that person well i kind of read that opinion also and 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 again it's kind of a in the book Jessica is a little bit more of a stoic. You don't, you don't, um, you don't really get a whole lot of emotional depth from the characters just in the mm-hmm. story. It's more of a case of like this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And you kind of get some insight into their philosophy in regards to other people or, or their observations in regards to other people, mm-hmm. but you don't really get, and maybe it's a, I don't know, with any, with any work of fiction, I mean, it's all in what the author is comfortable writing and maybe he wasn't super comfortable in writing uh, the emotions specifically of the characters, but it is kind of like a cold read. Uh, You know, it's, it's more about the stuff happening than it is about the emotions of the characters. So she isn't really like, if you read through the book, you don't really get that view of her as a character, but that doesn't necessarily mean like you, you do know that she's scared for her son when he goes into that room with her superior all by himself she knows exactly what's going to happen and she is outside saying that prayer or Mm -hmm. that uh that saying the whole time because she knows that if she hasn't done her job she's got a good chance that her son's going to be killed so i think to have her just kind of standing outside the door like it's a it's a choice that they make in the movie and from what you can kind of guess for the rest of the movie the rest of the characters are all very stoic very militaristic and very duty, dutiful people, I guess would mm-hmm. be the word. So to have one more character like that and not to have any emotional connection between a mother and a son, I think would be a huge mistake. Well, I didn't really find her while I was watching the movie. Didn't, didn't think that that was, you know, I wasn't worried about her reactions in that way. After all, their whole life just got tossed and then it got worse after that. Yeah. So how, you know, reactions are not weakness no and and the the interesting (laughs) thing about that character is and this is this is kind of something that you so in the in the book what happens is uh and this is kind of a difference that they made in the book the part where they get to the desert planet and they start to find spies right they they find the guy who's uh made an assassination attempt on paul atreides they start to they start to kind of unravel from the inside out and you, the book kind of turns into kind of like a uh, almost like a spy thriller because they suspect that there's a traitor in the midst. In, in fact, they're certain of it. Someone's feeding the, their enemy mm-hmm. information. And because she's such a mysterious figure, a lot of people, including Duncan Idaho, start to suspect that Lady Jessica is the traitor that's feeding information back to the Harkonnens because she doesn't really have a whole lot to say. She's not very open. She's not very trustworthy. And people don't typically trust the Bene Gesserit, her, her, um, her order, uh, at all, because they're, people think they have ill intentions and that they have an agenda and they do, right. They're, they're secretly the most powerful group in the whole Dune story, but they're playing a really long game. And this is, she's at the front lines of that long game when, when this movie happens. So that whole kind of, um, smoke and mirrors, cloak and dagger, kind of Lady Jessica's a spy subplot, kind of they had to toss. And I think what they did is they traded off that whole aspect of it to give the movie a little bit more of an emotional weight with her Mm -hmm. and her son, which 
which to me totally makes sense. It would be a, it would be a weird tonal shift to get down to the planet, to get down to Arrakis and just have like a weird spy thriller all of a sudden take place. It, it wouldn't make any sense. And I think it would just pad the runtime in a way that would make people feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like I, I get, I get why there's a lot of people who are butthurt that they filled in the blanks of her emotional responses, but you know, they did an interesting thing too, because if you see all of her emotional moments, they're all in private. So Mm -hmm. she's, she's walking down a hallway showing like you could see she's falling apart. And the next thing she gets into a room with her husband or not her husband, her Duke, and she's totally put herself back together in two seconds. Right. So she's, she's maintained that, that face, but you have to keep in mind too, that as soon as that lady comes down and gives Paul, Paul that test with the, the hand in the box thing from that point on, as soon as her mother's superior or whatever it is, gets back on that spaceship and takes off. She knows that she's in a whole world of shit and that, that the whole game has been stacked against them. She knows that right there, but she can't do anything to stop it. So she's just riding the wave, right? Mm -hmm. So you just imagine how a person would react in that situation. She can't really say anything because she doesn't know what's coming, but she just knows that they have to be careful. That's all they can really do. And yeah, it's it's just a rough go. So I don't know. I appreciated that they kind of gave the movie that emotional core, but it did come at the expense of the cool cloak and dagger storyline that maybe would have had a payoff, but you would have had to have a longer tack another 40 minutes onto that movie well, easily. We, we don't want to do that for sure, because you mentioned seats. My ass was hurting so bad at about two hours there that I was shifting side to side. Like, like you said, a lot <laughs> of us don't have the comfortable seats at the theater we go to. Sylvan Lake so, just doesn't have it. Oh, okay. So are you kind of more in the traditional movie, movie seats or do they got the ones that kind of, you can lean back a bit? There's no leaning back. No, no. Oh boy. So I, I'm a spoiled bastard, man. I saw this thing three times and the, and the local theater here in my town is absolutely wonderful. Right at the start of the pandemic last March, they went and they put in all these like full leather recliners. Mm -hmm. So you just hit a button and you're like laying down. My wife fell asleep. She was like, I really liked the movie, but I was just so comfortable. I just passed out for a bit. And I knew she had, but I didn't have the heart to wake her up. And I, and I was so focused on the movie. I was just amazed by it. So I didn't wake her up at all. So we're going to have to watch it again at another time. And then the second time I saw it, they also was in a, a Regina and I, I watched it there. And I they also had really comfy recliner seats. And the third time mm. I watched it was at the IMAX and they don't have those seats. And I was kind of shifting back and forth, waiting for waiting for the the end. So how's the IMAX experience of this? It was uh it was pretty good. They they have an expanded screen for some of the action scenes. So your your aspect ratio will shift between that wider aspect ratio and then they've got some other scenes that take up the full pretty much the full IMAX screen. So so it was a, a this movie's a spectacle and I think they they uh they traded some of the uh the plot points for more spectacle and more more of those yeah. scenes that that really stood out and kind of immersed you in the world so when you see that in the IMAX it really was a a really good effect yeah no complaints about that it was it was wonderful yeah you could say that there was awe-inspiring scenes oh yeah yeah there was a (laughs) that that was the thing I, I well there are so I have some I have I think I gave this movie a really good review. I have a, a letterbox account. Have you ever seen Letterbox? You go on no. there and you can like list your movies that you want to see and the ones that you have seen. And if you watch a movie, you can kind of like leave her a little review or whatever. So I gave it a good review on there. But I do have a few, I guess, 
I guess they'd be like minor gripes. And uh, one of the minor gripes is that, and I think you kind of touched on it, just kind of describing how the movie, you know, how the plot works in the movie. So every one of these planets are ruled by uh, a family, right? Kind of like Game of Thrones. So every every family, it works almost exactly the same way. Every family has a place that they rule, which is in these cases, uh, several different planets. And the most powerful of them is the emperor. He's got his own planet. Uh, you saw it briefly when they had that big army with the guys in the white suits who were smearing blood on their heads and all that. Mm-hmm. That's his army. So he's the most powerful of the families like the Baratheon guy in, in Game of Thrones or the, the Lannisters or whatever. And if you get powerful enough, then you get to be the emperor. So the whole impasse of this is that, you know, there's the Atreides family, they're on planet Caladan and they're getting more and more powerful and they rule, they have this big planet and it's filled with billions of people. But my big gripe is that whenever we're at these planets, there's always a scale. There's thousands, millions of people that live on these planets. They're all ruling these civilizations that are all vastly different from each other, being that they're so far apart and it's so expensive to travel to them. But you never really get a sense of how immense these planets are. You, you just don't. I mean, when you when you see uh, planet Caladan, where the Atreides live, you're kind of like, there's one palace thing that looks like part of Naboo and Star Wars. But there's really, you know, maybe there's a, maybe there's 20,000 people or I don't know yep. how many because because you don't really see them right you don't really see how immense no. this guy's operation is and He's, then they cross the island and you're wait and you're expecting maybe to see Luke Skywalker uh yeah yeah and a strange space cow yeah or something and, you know, they get to, uh, yeah, the, you know, he's got the, the green, uh, you know, sea creature booby milk. Yeah. And- yeah. yeah. That's what it seemed like we were heading towards because they're crossing this island with rock structures on. I'm like, oh, where are we? I don't know where they or filmed this all planet. I think it was, uh, they filmed, where was it? I know they filmed in Saudi Arabia and they filmed in, I think it, I want to say Romania or something like that. It might've been the Caladan scenes, but yeah, it's a, I don't know. It's a. They, so they had they had scenes of spectacle, but it's all like really cool world building stuff, right? Where where uh, you know you get to see all the machines, you get to see all the stuff, but the whole kind of world feels a little bit hollow. And even mm-hmm. when they show crowds of people, it's at a funny angle where it's like kind of like low down, where you can see like a line of people are there, and they use this shot a couple of times, so you can see like there's a whole horde of people there. But all you soldiers really... though, right? They're not they're not commoners. Well, there's, there's shots of soldiers, but there's, so you see big shots of soldiers and there's like big crowds of them and and there's tons of them. But when they get to Arrakis, there's a shot where there's a whole bunch of people and they're they're all shouting that this guy's the Messiah and stuff like this. But when you see them, you see, they're all lined up in a perfect line right in the middle of the shot. And you could see that there's a bunch of them, but there's, this is a whole city, man. Like they have a whole city called Arakeen and they live there. That's where the palace is. And there's people who come beg for water in the book. And there's just, that's, it's a city. Like there's millions of people in this city. It's huge, but you don't really get a scale that there's any people there other than military guys and whoever's work in the spice mines, right? The spice machines. So that was my, that was my one gripe is it kind of feels like all the, all the worlds feel kind of small and it could have been just a few little establishing shots here and there where you're kind of like, look at the scale of all this world they're ruling. Look how many people are affected by this. You know, at one point they, they show up and they fucking firebomb the whole city at the end of the, you know, at one point or the middle of the movie, they firebomb everything. And you're like, well, you know, 
what what's really happening here there's there's no, nobody lives there so you don't really get a sense that they're doing any damage but they're murdering like mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know hundreds of thousands of people it's got to be well and, not to mention all the water that they just release into the atmosphere in the form of steam yeah that's a big a bit, deal which is a yeah and so they had a little bit of one of one of the things that, that's pretty much my only gripe is that it felt hollow like is there anything that you kind of caught that no that that kind of sums it up in a way like all you see is army stuff in certain scenes yeah and you're like is that is that all that is this civilization just all army is that all that there is you don't see commoners just because they don't leave the area where the army is so I no. guess that's the same exact concern, right? But when they were on the Emperor's planet or wherever that was, that was a creepy scene. That that oh, one the out of the whole entire movie sticks with me more than anything else for some reason. I think it's because the uh, the chanting that dude was doing up on top of that pillar. Well, that make it's it's so morbid, dude. Like if you take yeah. a really hard look at that, they got like guys that are hanging upside down, oh, yeah. and bleeding them out, and getting just like pools of blood to rub on their heads, or I don't know what they're doing with that shit, but. It's not, it's not good, man. They're, they're pretty mean guys. That army in the book, the, the, the Sardaukar army, they're, they're, they're pretty much known as like the, the most elite fighting force in the whole, in the whole universe. And that's how that guy got to be the emperor is he had this just elite team of um, guys that were so brutal. They get, they get uh, brought up on this one planet where the gravity's heavier and oh, okay. the conditions are brutal. It's rainy all the time. And they're just, they're just like really hardened guys so that when you, whenever you move them to a different planet to fight someone, they're just ass kicking machines. Right. So they're, mm. they're just like the, the legendary, they're like the legendary army that no one can beat. And that's why they're so feared. So he only really needed to lend a, I don't know what it is, a hundred or so of these guys. And that was enough to, uh, to kind of sweep, to sweep the good guys up. So the other, the other, uh, Kind of, I guess I'm going to say the the only other sticking point I had was there's a character who you find out is the actual betrayer, which is their doctor. That whole scenario, it just kind of comes out of left field in the movie. And in the book, it's a little bit more built up. I think they did it as well as they could in the movie. And I don't know if it was just kind of like the explanation for it. I don't know if you got why that guy did that or not. Yeah, they swiped his wife. And yeah wouldn't re- and she was suffering and they wouldn't release her unless he did what they said yeah it, it, like but she were, was already dead is what was really going on oh yeah like i mean it, um so one of the things they did do for between the the book um and the david lynch movie to this movie is they turned the dial down on baron harkonnen and his uh his uh evil ways yeah like in the book he's pretty much the most horrifyingly despicable person ever and the the things that he's doing to this guy's this guy's wife is just so hideous and the things he does to other people is just so hideous that if you were to put them in this movie it would just be it would, it would be off-putting so they kind of toned it down to make him a little bit more of a uh you know a paint by numbers villain because mm-hmm. i think the like the you know he's still bad enough i think like he still does bad enough stuff but his motivations aren't like of a disgusting sexual nature like they are in the book and his appetites are more i i guess um you kind of get like a the gist of his appetites whereas in the book it just goes right into what they are and you're like holy shit this is depressing so 
they they did they did do that but with the with the whole betrayal of uh dr yui you know they kind of speed ran through that part of it too they're just like hey man uh, you know they, they kind of took my wife or whatever and in the book they kind of lead up to that more so so the reader knows that dr yui is the betrayer and it's kind of like a race to catch him because again that whole part of it is tied in with the suspicion and he's kind of deflected suspicion and put it on to jessica so that mm-hmm. more people suspect her than they do him so he's got like a little diamond tattoo on his head right and in the lore of dune that means that that guy is this kind of doctor or whatever and he's had this imperial conditioning that's supposed to be unbreakable this guy's mentally conditioned to a point where he's incorruptible so to speak but the baron is such a hard-ass bad guy that he's actually corrupted this guy showing him all the hideous shit that's happening to his wife and this guy's got no choice but to break his own conditioning and betray his his employer or his Mm. duke or whatever in in such a fashion so they kind of skate by that too so there's some world building stuff that i think they focused on the spectacle of the story which Mm -hmm. is probably the wisest choice rather than to get in the weeds with a bunch of world building that maybe might not make a difference in the end i mean dr yui only is in the movie for you know half half the movies and then he's out and then you don't really need to know anything about imperial conditioning after that so probably a smart choice but again it was kind of like you don't really get the idea that he did it because the consequence to him was so horrible that he had really no choice he's just a little bit cartoony in that respect but those are my gripes that's the those are my only gripes about the whole movie it's funny how many small things that are probably in the books that that most people will just never know. And, and this is the way it is with, with uh, a few, few uh, stories that will just never make it. They'll never be done really the way they should be. If you were going to do a visual of them, like Hyperion would be the same way. Yeah. You, uh, you would have a hard time fitting. You'd have to make the first book would make five movies. Could make five movies. Maybe. Oh, you well, could. Yeah. <laughs> The argument would be, and, and a lot of people say this now, is that now that we're so spoiled with all the crazy long-form TV shows, that uh, Dune would be, you could do the story better on TV. And to be honest with you, I'm going to say that the 2000 miniseries is just proof and point to that. You can do the story better on TV, but I think the trade-off is going to be that spectacle aspect of it. And to me, when they decided to make this into a movie, that's what they did is they turned up that spectacle part because they were like, we're, we're going to get to, by breaking this into two movies, that was the, uh, so you've got a, I guess you didn't know that this was going to be split over a couple shows. No. Well, I purposely didn't, didn't want to uh, know too much about it. So I didn't really check into it. It didn't hurt yeah. to, it didn't hurt my feelings or anything, but you know, I, I, for whatever reason, thought it was going to be the entire book. So when you saw uh, Dune Part One pop up in the uh, opening credit sequence, did that was that like a that was the clue? Yeah, <laughs> you're like shit. Part One. Every a lot of people are like, well, just make it on, put it on HBO, man. And you know, I I guess you could, but at the same time, I think you'd be robbed of that spectacle of seeing it in the theater. Like mm-hmm. if you make it for HBO, are they going to play it at the IMAX? I don't think so. And I think this is the sort of thing that really does well there and splitting it up over two movies. This one, they took a lot of time to build the world. And I think everyone's got enough information, even if you haven't read Dune or you haven't seen the miniseries or the David Lynch version or anything like that. And you're just walking into this one fairly cold. I think you still have enough. They've done enough world building that when you get to the next part, 
you're going to have a good base for what you're about to see. And the next one is where all the nuts shit happens. And I'm, I'm, I'm most excited for that. Uh, that's the part where we talk about, you know, Dune's a story and, and you mentioned it. It's, it's a story about people doing psychedelic drugs, having mm-hmm. crazy visions and, and, uh, and just kind of tripping balls in a really warmongery kind of way. I definitely liked the big, the big scenes. Cause you don't get, you don't get that in, uh, not to that extent in most movies anymore. Not really. They're too busy being busy. Yeah. Like the last yeah. uh, three star Wars movies, for instance, they were just busy being busy all the time. Well, you mean like a lot of plot things happening where you're, yeah, a you're lot on... of quick, we got it. Okay. Now, no, wait, we're going to do this. No, wait, this. Okay, but now this, like it's constantly jumping, never sticks around at one spot to explore anything. They're just like quickly showing you something. Yeah. Slapping it in your face and then, okay, but now we're going to this, which yeah, is it, they don't really get to explore any one thing when they do that. Whereas this movie took the time to fully look at what, that giant army looks like for instance or whatever yeah i think i think you you kind of hit the nail on the head like the stories the story's got enough meat and potatoes that you can kind of okay they're there to do this they're being set up to fail and then when when all the things happen that eventually lead to kind of like the uh, empire strikes back ending in the first movie which i thought was kind of nuts where they ended it but mm-hmm. uh when, when it gets to there, it all kind of makes sense. And there aren't a whole bunch of crazy uh, MacGuffins to go chase. There aren't a whole bunch of like new mm-hmm. elements that get added halfway through the story. I think it's pretty efficient in the fact that they're going to do this, then this, and then this, and then this happens. And it never strays really from, from what they're there to do and what they're, what they're, but the story's already setting up. Yeah. There isn't, there isn't a whole lot of there. Well, there's none of that. It's just, no, everything they didn't have to take sense. off. They didn't have to take off to a casino planet or anything. So it, yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not like that at all. Right. But well, if you keep reading the books, it gets a little bit, I'm going to say, okay, well, maybe we could talk about the books later, but we'll have a little, we'll have a little preamble after the after the main part. But so what did you think of where they ended it as a guy who hasn't read the book? Did you think it was a satisfying ending? Maybe not. It just kind of just ended. And you're like, oh, okay. That's it? Now, my wife, of course, she didn't know anything about anything that was going on. And she's like, that was a weird way to end it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I got to ask you, what did she think of the whole thing? She said it was okay. It wasn't her most favorite story. She had a lot of questions going through. She didn't understand the political things that were going on right yeah. off the bat. She needed a little bit more, more info. And I can see that. Like I had an insight to what was happening already. You know, I knew about the pain box and all that stuff coming up. Even though I haven't read the book, I knew basics where she's just going in. Okay. Why are they leaving this planet again? Okay. Now what is this planet? You know, because they didn't really spell some of the stuff out. Yeah, and and that's kind of maybe there's there's a couple. I think uh, one of the things that they maybe did that I that I actually appreciate, but they might it might wind up coming back to bite them in the end would be that they didn't really do 
that front end world building, you know, like you have a whole bunch of different, like this is an alien environment to a, a person that's watching it. That's that hasn't seen anything. So mm-hmm. I think they, in some instances, they do a good job of like explaining people's intentions and stuff. Like, you know, what the, uh, the Bene Gesserit's intentions are because Jessica tells her son and, and it was really well done. She's like, well, they've been planting traditions and, and, mm-hmm. and legends and stuff on all these different places for years in, in preparation for this one guy to come and kind of do that. So, so they're like making their own prophecy kind of come true it's not that there even is one so you kind of get a sense of that but Mm -hmm. you don't get a sense really in in the broader scope of what they're doing how many of them there are in that order and what kind of what kind of other shit they're up to like you just you you see enough that you can get a good idea about them and i think later on in the other movie it becomes a little bit more clear about what they're all about and just what kind of pull they have and what kind of work they've been doing on places like you know this uh, arrakis and they've got people on like how many fingers they have their uh, or how many pies they have their fingers in, I guess would be the same, but, mm-hmm. but you'll get more of a sense of that in the next movie. So when you watch this one uh, and my wife and kids, when they watch it with me, they, they didn't, they had, they had zero frame of reference. Like they, I put on the 1984 Dune and their eyes roll back in their heads. They're like, Holy shit, not this shit again. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm laughing because it's just so stupidly funny. Like Patrick Stewart's running in there with a pug in his hand into a battle. And I just think it's wonderfully fantastic. But, but so, now they've actually, they all like this version of it, but there's so much that, and they came out of it going, holy shit, well, well, well you know all about this stuff. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did mm. this happen? So I was able to kind of give them enough reference to, uh, you know, for them. And they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense now. Uh, and I didn't want to spoil what's happening in the next movie for them, because I think that mm-hmm. when people see what's going to happen in the next movie, if they do what I think they're going to do, it's going to be a, a fucking shit show. Like it's going to be nuts. So they were kind of in the same way in the same boat as Nicole, where it wasn't flat out self-explanatory. No. Yeah. There were, there were, there were certainly questions and, and, mo- and, and a lot of them were to do with kind of like, kind of like the world building stuff that I don't mm-hmm. think they had a whole lot of time in the movie. Like the, you know, Dr. Yui, why he did that, why he had the diamond tattoo on his head, why the guy's eyes rolled back in their heads when they're doing, you know, so that, that math. I knew. And for whatever reason, that just seemed obvious to me, that one. So then I went yeah. and looked it up after the movie. I'm like, yep, that's what it was. Well, some people are are saying that well, some people thought that that guy was a robot and that those two <laughs> dudes were robots, right? But they're not. And the backstory of Dune and another thing that I find clever, I don't know if you know this, but in the in the in the lore of Dune, way back, way back before they had all this crazy sci-fi shit and spice and all that stuff, they had a they had a terrible war with an artificial intelligence. So the prospect of that was so grave that uh, hu- hu- humankind won that war. They met, wound up unplugging this great uh, artificial intelligence before it really did anything super bad. But because that happened, they made a law that said, you're not allowed to make a machine in the image of a human mind. So you can't have any machines that do any thinking. It's against the law. And all the major players, except for one, there's one that they haven't come into play yet, but they've all signed off on this and they, they won't make robots. They won't make computers. They won't make calculators. They won't make shit that does the, uh, the function mm. of a human brain. So that's why they have those guys there, these mentots, those, those are actually like their computers and they do all the complex math and strategizing and all that stuff that maybe you'd run an algorithm for Right. But, mm. uh, that's a little bit of a backstory. That's, that's a deep dive into Dune. 
yeah, that's why those guys exist. And that's also, so there's a, another little thing too. And, and this is, so you notice that everyone's running around, they got the fucking cool shields they turn on, you know, mm-hmm. red means bad, blue means good. But you notice that when the people are fighting out in the desert, that they don't use those because as soon as you turn them on, they attract the sandworms. So once you're in the desert, all these tough bastards that are running around with all their shields on, they can't use them at all because the worms are going to come. They're going to go into Mm -hmm. a feeding frenzy and just wreck everything. So you can't use those shields. And you also notice that people have guns in the movie, but the guns shoot these shitty darts that are made to penetrate the shields, right? Mm -hmm. They have laser guns, but they use them quite sparingly. And the reason for that is if you hit, uh, and this is in the book, is if you shoot somebody with a laser gun and they have a shield on, it causes an explosion so powerful that it's like a nuclear explosion, like you're talking kilotons of force and it's wildly unpredictable, right? So what winds up happening is that in order for you to get close enough to use that laser gun on a guy with a shield, if you do it, you're going to blow him up and you're going to kill yourself too and probably 100,000 people. So people don't typically use any sort of guns. They all use swords. So that's why people run around in space having sword fights in the movie. Someone, someone brought that up in, a, in an article I saw or in a review I saw, and they're like, why the fuck are these guys running around in space having sword fights? It's kind of weird. But uh, that's why, because you don't want to have a nuclear explosion. Well, that's clever, clever thinking. But they, again, that's something that they don't really touch on. They just kind of like leave that that way. I think the thinking is, is that like, unless you ask that question, you don't need to have it answered. And for the most part, did you ever ask why all these guys were running around having sword fights? Well, they actually mentioned the fact that uh, you can't turn the shields on in the desert. And it was pretty obvious after watching just the one hunter seeker dart, why you couldn't use a uh, regular gun because. Because he mentioned it when he tried to hit him with the sword, and he said the slow-moving blade goes through the shield. Yeah, and I thought, okay, well, guns don't work then. Yeah, it's so, like so that's, th- okay. So, so they, they did, did enough work clears. There. Yeah, they didn't. They did enough. If you're work paying there. attention. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm happy there because that 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 idea got conveyed. I think in a more efficient way. Yeah. At one point in the book, there's a cool scene where Duncan Idaho he turns on the shields of his uh, little cool uh, ornithopter there, and he he uh, he runs it into a, a a bunch of Harkonnens and he jumps out, and then they shoot it with a laser gun and it fucking blows up and nukes them all. Hmm. They didn't they didn't do that part in the movie, which was kind of a bummer. So, what'd you think of Duncan Idaho? Pretty good. Uh, Jason Momoa, did you find him out of place in the movie at all? His uh, lack of a beard was distracting. Yeah, everyone's but used his to fighting him with a beard. skills were good. Yeah, and but uh, he, yeah, the foreshadowing was there. Oh, they you definitely know, you, did. You knew what was going to happen to him. He so, was like, nah, that's not going to happen. And then he makes it through the first battle, and you're like, well, was that the room? No. Yeah. So yeah, the foreshadowing um, was quite effective. I thought one of the coolest things about reading the the book is uh, before every chapter that you're going to read, you get like a little paragraph of something that you know is coming from the future. So you're getting kind of a glimpse of something that's, they're kind of telling you that something's already happened, but 
but it doesn't really make sense in what you're getting until you read till the end of the book. And then you're like, who's this guy? And who's this guy? Who's saying this? Who's this guy? And who's that guy? And, uh, and then by the time you get to the end, you're, you read, you, you can go back and read all those little excerpt paragraphs that precede the actual chapter of the book. And they all kind of start to make sense. You're like, holy shit, because the book is kind of telling you the future in the same way that the characters are capable of seeing a little bit of it, but you don't really get it from, you don't really know that it's happening until you get to the end of the book. So it, it's kind of a, a clever thing. And that's something that they wind up carrying through all six of the Frank Herbert books and the, and the two that his, his son wrote. So, which we're going to talk about at the end. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think with the Duncan Idaho stuff, they kind of foreshadowed his fate in a way that you could kind of guess that it was going to happen. And I think it kind of lent a, a bit of, a, a bit of credence to the fact that, um, now that I think about it and I haven't until you just brought it up when you get to the end and he's been seeing his own demise or what you think is his own demise at the hands of the knife, you're kind of questioning whether or not he's going to be killed. Well, I knew he wouldn't be killed. Yeah. Just because I knew a little bit about the story. However, it seemed like maybe he was going to get wounded and I didn't remember that happening either. And then I thought, well, maybe this is like a choice point. This part here, if you were familiar with the David Lynch portion of the book, or sorry, if you were familiar with David Lynch, the David Lynch movie, he did not have this fight for the death part in, in, that, in that movie at all. And it's something that's a, a linchpin for the book. It's the big kind of like the big change moment, moment for him where he has to make a choice to like either go on the path that, mm-hmm. that he knows he, sh- he might not want to be on. Or if he, or if he just lets himself die. So if he let himself die, uh, you know, then all the stuff wouldn't happen. And that's kind of like his one, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give anything away there, but that's kind of like a, the big, the big deal. And I have a feeling that when people go back and they look at these two films as a whole, I'm hoping that, you know, the stuff that they, where they chose to end it at that point, kind of like makes a little bit more Mm. sense when you look at the whole thing as, as a, as a one, one movie sort of thing, but. So, so it is an inflection point. Uh, Oh, big time. Like it's a, you know, he's the movie did a really good job of him coming into kind of a prescience. This is a a character, not unlike the one we're talking about Hyperion. And I think it's, how do you say her name? Inya? Inya? Yeah. Inya. She's kind of got like a, the same sort of thing going on where she can see a little bit far enough into the future that she can kind of, you know, use that to her advantage up to a certain point or, or she can kind of like set her own fate, but it comes at a kind of a terrible cost where you, you see what's going to happen eventually Mm -hmm. down the road. And he certainly suffers from the same fate too. Well, I may read the, the Dune books. We'll just, uh, I have a lot of things on the go, but I might, like I said, it's on the to-do list. So, and I have a couple of years. So it'll probably happen. At least one of them will happen for sure. Well, how much do you know about the books? Is there eight of them? Uh, of the main story, there are eight. Uh, Frank Herbert wrote six. He died before he could really kind of finish the whole story. So, so his portion of it, which is, I think, called Chapter House Dune, was the last book that he wrote. Mm. It kind of ends on a, on a uh, you know that there's more, there's supposed to be more coming. So what wound up happening is I think in the eighties, sometime in the late eighties, after he'd been dead a while, his son and this other sci-fi writer, uh, Kevin J. Anderson mysteriously found a safety deposit box 
and it had Frank Herbert's outlines for the last two novels. So these two guys went and wrote the last two novels and they fucking go right into Rise of Skywalker territory. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well... Good to know. (laughs) They're they're not. It's it's the same experience. Like you know, it's not it's not something that you want to skip reading or seeing. Like you want to kind of know where the story goes. But at the end, it's like you like that guy. You like that guy. You like this lady here. You like them. They're all here, baby. And uh, Mm. you know, it feels like a little bit cheap. But it's it's a pretty crazy story, man. Like, dude, I'm telling you, where you think it's gonna go and where it goes is just way out to launch man you're gonna love it okay well why don't we wrap up on that note we'll uh we'll agree that the books are worth reading and if you don't read them your life is just worth less than it would be if you did read them well well i want to say one more thing before we go is i had someone (laughs) I, i had someone who asked me if if they should read the book before they go and see the movie and i'm i think i rightly told that person it won't make a difference if you go and see the movie before you read the book you're going to be you're going to like the movie there's enough here for you to chew on and get an idea of but if you also want to know more about you know the the whole if you want to know the if you want to take that deep dive then the book is going to be left with a bunch of surprises that you just don't get from the movie that you're going to be like wow this is really cool reading the book because i think the the movie that we just saw does a really good job of distilling all that stuff in the story, but it leaves enough stuff out of that book that you could go back and read that book. And, and either one, you wouldn't be spoiled either way. So if you're, if you're out there and you're de- debating, tossing up whether or not you should go see this because you haven't read the book, go see it and read the book after or read the book first. It's not going to make a difference. One won't affect your enjoyment of the other, I don't think. So one more thing. If you get the chance to watch this movie on your iWatch, please do. What the fuck, Tim? (laughs) Because nothing will be less (laughs) (laughs) awe-inspiring. I think I saw a video of someone watching the last Martin Scorsese movie on a train ride on his like tiny shitty iPhone 4 or something. (laughs) And they were like, just as the director intended. (laughs) Okay, so what do you rate this movie? Oh, I I rate it I rate it seven spice harvesters out of eight. Seven out of eight. Yeah, okay. well, that's probably about where I would rate it too. Except for, of course, that mine would be fourteen out of like fifteen point nine. Oh wow, that's that's pretty crazy. Well, I thought I was getting really out there, but fifteen point nine. Jesus, Tim, what the hell? You've really won up to your game. Okay, well, let's reconvene in two years for this topic. Oh yeah, I think we, I think we will. I, we're predicting right now. My prescience is telling me it's going to be a good time. Mm-hmm. But for now, Tim, I guess uh, we could say it's been a spice. Yeah. It, well, there you go. It's been a spice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk again okay. later. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Yeah. Oh, Jesus. I, yeah, I'd say so. Superheroes <laughs> gather in vans and wander from town to town. Yeah, I don't know if sad I can. And... I don't know if I can watch Salma Hayek shit in a bucket twice in this movie. It's. <laughs> okay.